It's Monday, June 6th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, it is the 100th anniversary of the humble gummy bear. But did you know that they've only been in America since the 80s? Plus, could one source of water ice on the moon be ancient volcanoes? And something strange is afoot in the reproductive lives of cockroaches. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. This year, 2022, is the 100-year anniversary of the Gummy Bear. The late 19th through early 20th centuries saw huge transformations in candy, due both to advances in industrial technology and sharply reduced costs of sugar and the subsequent culinary discoveries therein. The gummy bear was invented by Haribo, the German company founded by Hans Riegel, and named after the first two letters in his first name, last name, and hometown of Bonn, hence Haribo. Riegel founded Haribo in 1920, so you might have seen some big centenary celebrations happening two years ago, or not, I'm sure their celebratory plans were dampened a bit by the start of the pandemic, but this year is a much more broad anniversary. Haribo may have invented the gummy bear 100 years ago, but it's become a treat unto itself, replicated by countless other companies in the years since. And while Haribo may have been the first to make a gummy candy in bear form, Regal was far from the first to make a gelatin-based candy. Gumdrops, Turkish delights, and wine gums were already on the market when Regal set out on his own to found Haribo. Jujubes were also invented around the same time by a German immigrant in the U.S., and an American named Fred W. Amund created yet another jelly confection concurrently. Like with so much else, there were many people inventing very similar products all around the same time, because we had hit a point where the technology and other innovations to do so were all ripe for the taking. In this case, Beth Kimmerell, the author of several books on confectionery history, says, quote, Gummy candies descend from Turkish delights and even Japanese rice candy, but both of those are typically made with rice or cornstarch versus gelatin. Cooking sugar along with fruit has long been a way to preserve or store summer's harvest, so technically gummy candies are also cousins of jams and jellies, end quote. And it was Regal's business acumen and the unique shape of the Haribo gummy bears that helped them stand out from the rest. Taking Haribo from a little homespun candy factory with just Regal's wife Gertrude on her bike making deliveries to a 400-employee-strong establishment pumping out 10 tons of candy each day by the start of World War II. Now, being in Germany during World War II, you can kind of guess that this is where the history gets complicated. Regal's sons, Hans Jr. and Paul, had fought on the German side and been taken prisoner by the Allied forces. Regal himself died towards the end of the war, so Hans Jr. and Paul took over the company after the war, but at that point it had shrunk down to just 30 employees, essentially starting again from the beginning. But within five years, they had built back their losses and more, expanding to a thousand employees, a whole suite of new products, and fresh marketing strategies, including being one of the very first products to advertise on TV in Germany. In the years since, however, there's been some criticism leveled at Haribo and its alleged practices during the war. Despite the company denying it and pulling archival evidence to prove their stance, some have accused them of using forced labor in their factories during the Nazi regime. This was mostly brought up in 2000 when Haribo declined to join the Remembrance, Responsibility, and the Future Foundation, which was established to compensate individuals who had been forced to work during the regime. 
Some other not-so-great bits of gummy bear history. Well, first, we are talking about gelatin here, a food made from the collagen of animals, making anything with gelatin in it technically not vegetarian. And some gummies, like Haribo's flagship Gold Bears, also used to be treated with carnauba wax. And in 2017, some claimed that Brazilian workers producing the carnauba wax were effectively being treated as slave labor. Haribo launched an investigation and said that they didn't find any evidence of modern slavery in their practices. However, they proceeded to switch suppliers, eventually swapping carnauba wax altogether in favor of beeswax, and then became a founding member of the Initiative for Responsible Carnauba. So not too bad of a response, at least. Uh, and originally, they weren't called gummy bears at all. Up until 1960, Haribo called them dancing bears, or Tansbaren, so named after actual dancing bears, bears that Europeans used to train to dance and perform tricks for audiences. This was a horribly abusive practice back in the day. Bears were usually captured as cubs and raised in captivity to perform. Sometimes they were even placed on top of hot coals while music played, so they would be trained to associate music with lifting their feet up in the way they did when in pain from their feet being burned on the coals. This practice was obviously banned eventually, but the idea of dancing bears stayed as a cultural touchpoint, especially in the early to mid-20th century. The gummies also originally looked more like real bears than their current, more teddy bear look. In the beginning, they were larger and thinner, and they stayed that way all the way up until 1978, when they took on the shape we're more familiar with today. And I say we, but I know that most of you listening live in the US, and we didn't actually have gummy bears over here until 1981, and they weren't Haribo. The first gummy bears in the U.S. were manufactured by Jelly Belly, although Haribo came over here just a year later, flooding our supermarkets with their products and quickly turning the gummy bear into an accepted part of American pop culture, with Disney even airing an animated series called Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Of course, prior to that time, Americans could get their hands on gummy bears abroad. They were seen as a sort of foreign cuisine, and it was the popularity among people bringing them back from Germany that got Jelly Belly to hop on the gummy bear train to begin with. And there was yet another competitor to Haribo in the early 80s, and this one was on their home turf in Germany, Trolley. They were the ones who introduced the very first gummy worms, so conceived to hit that perfect gross-out concept that kids loved and grown-ups hated. Very Nickelodeon, the orange years of them. Haribo still has its competitors in Trolley, Jelly Belly, Brock's, Black Forest, and others around the world, but it is far from slowing down. Haribo currently has an inventory of over a thousand products with many unique to certain markets and is beloved by many as the gold standard for gummies, something that their gold bears marketing might subliminally affect, but it's true that their gummies with their slightly firmer texture and richer flavor certainly seem a bit more highbrow. It is also still a family business, now in its third generation of the Regal family, and in 2023, they will be opening their first North American manufacturing facility in Wisconsin, which was originally supposed to open for their centennial in 2020, but, well, you know. Haribo makes 100 million gummy bears every single day, according to the Seattle Times, and sales are only going up. And I will leave you with one last fact about Haribo that people often don't believe me when I tell them. So you know how in the original Gold Bears package in the US there are five colors? White, yellow, orange, red, and green? Well, they correspond to five flavors. Pineapple, lemon, orange, raspberry, and strawberry. 
Yes, the green is not green apple or watermelon or lime or anything else predominantly green. It's strawberry. Because of the leaves, I guess? Of course, if the green color does enough of a brain teaser on you that it never tastes like strawberry enough, you can just buy one of Haribo's packages of strawberry-shaped gummies instead. Really, you can find almost anything in gummy form these days, whether from Haribo or other manufacturers. And it just gets me wondering, you know, think about something else being developed right now, and try to imagine how many different varieties and changes it might go through over the next 100 years. What will be the three-pound gummy worm equivalent of today's latest inventions? Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. <laughs> Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See CricketWireless.com for details. We know that there's water ice on the moon in permanently shadowed craters at the poles, but new research out of Colorado University Boulder suggests that the source of the water ice could have been volcanoes, specifically volcanic eruptions on the moon billions of years ago. Quoting Interesting Engineering, Planetary scientists speculate that from 2 to 4 billion years ago, tens of thousands of volcanoes erupted across the moon's surface, resulting in huge rivers and lakes of lava. They dwarf almost all of the eruptions on Earth, says co-author Paul Hain. These raging volcanoes likely also ejected clouds made up of mostly carbon monoxide and water vapor that swirled around the moon, potentially creating water-based atmospheres. It is these atmospheres that the researchers presume left the ice on the lunar surface. And according to the researchers' computer modeling, roughly 41% of the water from volcanoes may have condensed onto the moon as ice. The atmospheres escaped over about a thousand years, so there was plenty of time for ice to form, says lead author Andrew Wilkowski, end quote. So using that modeling, the researchers, whose study was published last month in the Planetary Science Journal, recreated the conditions on the moon from way back when, back before complex life on Earth. And quoting from CU Boulder, they discovered that ancient moon volcanoes spewed huge amounts of water vapor, which then settled onto the surface, forming stores of ice that may still be hiding in lunar craters. If any humans had been alive at the time, they may have even seen a sliver of that frost near the border between day and night on the moon's surface. End quote. And there are practical applications to this finding. If the researchers are right, there could be quite a bit more water on the moon than we thought. I mean, from their calculations, about 18 quadrillion pounds of volcanic water may have been condensed as ice after the volcanic period. And as CU Boulder points out, that's more water than there is currently in Lake Michigan. And much of it may still be there today in huge ice sheets five or ten meters below the surface of the moon, so future astronauts would have even more resources for drinking and processing into rocket fuel. Not that it'll be easy to get to without a good amount of drilling, and the idea of drilling on the moon always gives me the heebie-jeebies, but at least as far as objectives for these missions are concerned, it could be worth it to find these giant stores of water. Let's talk about cockroach sex. 
No, that's not some new slang term for God knows what. I am talking about actual cockroaches and a strange new trend scientists have observed in their reproductive behavior. Now first, here's an overview of how it's supposed to go down, quoting the New York Times. When a male cockroach wants to mate with a female cockroach very much, he will scoot his butt toward her, open his wings, and offer her a homemade meal. Sugars and fats squished out of his turgle gland. As the lovely lady nibbles, the male locks onto her with one penis, while another penis delivers a sperm package. If everything goes smoothly, a roach's romp can last around 90 minutes. End quote. And if you were just like, whoa, cockroaches have two penises? Not quite. They've got a lot of different equipment down there used for different purposes, and according to some entomologists, none of them would quite be described as a penis. But that is actually like the least weird thing about cockroach reproduction and what's been happening in that realm as of late. So basically, starting in 1993, scientists began to observe that some German cockroaches no longer liked glucose. Apparently, we laced poisons and pesticides with sweet stuff to attract cockroaches one too many times, and over the generations, the ones who avoided sweet things lived and therefore passed on that aversion to their progeny. But you might remember from the Times' anatomy lesson that a sweet and fatty treat is part of how males attract females. So now, a lot of female cockroaches are less likely to allow the male to go through the whole courtship process and never end up mating with them. So does that mean less cockroaches in our future? Sadly not. In a new study published last month in the journal Communications Biology, Dr. Ayoko Watakatsumata from North Carolina State University and her team explained that many of the males are glucose-averse too, and those that are know how to compensate to appease these similarly glucose-averse females, essentially by jumping to the main act very quickly after making their offering, within about three seconds. This is something that male cockroaches without the aversion haven't picked up on doing yet. The study also indicates that there may be some changes in the chemistry of those glucose-averse males' secretion, which would make it even easier to attract females going forward, helping them return to that 90-minute session instead of just three seconds. So, bad news if you were hoping this would ultimately lead to the end of cockroaches. They are unfortunately quite adaptable. But so are we. Pesticide manufacturers have already been reformulating away from glucose. And as the New York Times points out, quote, From a scientific perspective, the German cockroach's sugar saga shows how humans can drive both natural selection, the cockroaches that survive our poison traps, as well as sexual selection, the glucose-averse cockroaches who no longer want to mate with cockroaches that still offer sweet snacks. I think that's what makes this so compelling, Dr. Schall said. The idea that humans impose very strong selection on animals around us, especially inside our home, and that the animals respond not only with physiological changes, but also with behavioral changes. End quote. It's a little similar to the peppered moths I mentioned last week, whose color changed to better fit in with the polluted soot skies of newly industrialized England. That was human behavior driving natural selection in another species. And this is too, albeit of a slightly more complicated and salacious variety. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.